So this morning, we're continuing our teaching series called The Week That Saved the World, where we're taking this slow walk through the final week of Jesus's life. And today, we get to the moment where Jesus is, he is he's stripped naked, he is beaten, he is nailed to a cross, and he dies. Uh, this morning, we look at the moment that we, we call Good Friday. It's a moment that is so profoundly important in human history and so, so essential to, to human salvation in the eyes of, of people of faith like us that it has been the subject of, of just countless works of art and studied by millions upon millions of scholars. And in two weeks from now, uh, on Good Friday and Easter, it will be celebrated by billions and billions of people. One of my favorite works of art depicting the crucifixion of Jesus is, is this one by Rembrandt, circa 1633. It's called The Raising of the Cross, and you see this, this crowd of people that's around Jesus lifting him up into position on the, skull called, on the hill called Golgotha. And everyone in that picture is kind of complicit in the moment. You see the people in the middle who are hoisting Jesus up. You see the crowd around him who is, who is not actively stopping this moment. And you see the, the man in the background who is on a horse, who's got a sword out, and he's kind of directing the whole thing. This is what we're talking about today. Jesus raised up onto his throne, that is a cross. Now, many scholars believe that that we not only know for certain that this happened, but we know a precise date for its happening. Based on both textual and historical evidence, many scholars believe that, that this moment, the moment of Jesus' death, happened on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. Now, before we, we dive into what all this means, that Jesus, the Savior King, is taking his throne on a cross on a Friday in Jerusalem, in AD 33, I, I want to remind you of where we've been over this series, just so that we, we frame and we understand this moment appropriately. We started by talking about how the, the Jewish people were expecting a particular kind of king. They were expecting someone who would come and bring back the glory days of King David, who would restore their military power, who would restore some of the glory and beauty to that earthly kingdom, who'd be able to kick out the Romans who were the occupying force in Jerusalem and reestablish this, this beautiful, powerful, earthly kingdom. And it had been prophesied and predicted that eventually someone would show up and they would be the next David, the great savior king for God's earthly kingdom. And, and Jesus shows up on the first day of the, the last week of his life, that Sunday that we call Palm Sunday, which we will celebrate next week, and, and he, he puts all the pointing on him. He puts all the arrows on him, and he says, I'm that guy. I'm the long-awaited Savior King. He enters in on a donkey, and people are waving palm branches, and it's all to say, I'm the one that you've been waiting for. The only problem is, when people start asking Jesus questions and interacting with him, he gives all the wrong answers. He says, not only am I God's man, but I'm God in flesh, God's own son. Wrong answer. And not only does he say, I'm here to establish God's kingdom in beauty and glory, but he says, I'm here to bring God's heavenly kingdom to earth. It's a kingdom that is spiritual and eternal. Wrong answer. 
And so all the authority figures and all the people of prominence and influence in Jerusalem, they turn against him and they lead him down this path that will ultimately lead towards Jesus' death on Friday. But what we said at the beginning of this journey is that don't be deceived. Everything that's going to happen, Jesus wants to have happen because all of it will serve to accomplish his will and his work and his aims. He's up to something in all of this. And all of it will serve to tell the world the kind of king that he is and the nature of the kingdom that he's bringing forward. So you remember that Thursday night, Jesus had celebrated the Last Supper, and then all of a sudden, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is arrested. And he's, he's taken into custody by the Jewish leaders. Now, now, the Jewish leaders are the ones that Jesus, if he's, if he's to be the true savior king, you would think he would need them on his side, the Jewish council. They were the kingmakers, so to speak. If there ever was a savior king to come, they were the ones who were going to lift him up and anoint him as the king. And yet they come to Jesus and they arrest him and they accuse him of blasphemy. Uh, think of the Jewish council like this. If you were running for class president, the Jewish council was the cool kids. You needed all their votes. Or if you're, you're running... Uh, for Senate. The Jewish council were, were, the, were the party leaders and the campaign financers. Or if you're running for like mayor of Chicago, the Jewish council were the mob bosses and the union heads. They were the people whose favor you needed to have in your back pocket in order to get the title that you wanted and that you thought you deserved. And yet these are the people who come to Jesus and they come not to anoint him as king, but they come and they accuse him of blasphemy. They come with their fingers pointed saying, you are absolutely, definitely not the one, not only that, but you have blasphemed against God and you are guilty of high crimes and spiritual misdemeanors. Jesus is a particular kind of king, and we see it on Thursday. Jesus is a king accused. He's accused. Being accused is, uh, is an awful feeling, isn't it? I mean, think back to a time when you have been on the receiving end of somebody else's pointed finger. You don't even like me doing this now, do you? It's an awful feeling, isn't it? When someone looks at you and says, you, you, you're the one who did this. No one likes to be under the bright lights of accusation. And maybe you've been there. I don't know if you know this, but, but that feeling is, is the reason why a lot of people stay away from church. Maybe that's why, why, why you stayed away from church for a long time, because you associated coming to a place like this with, with the giant pointed finger of God pointing straight at you, and you felt like it was going to be a place of total accusation and nothing but judgment, and you didn't want any of that in your life, and so you decided just to stay away for a while, because being accused of anything, rightly, wrongly, is a horrible feeling. And yet what we see is that Jesus knows that feeling. Rather than anointed as the Savior King, his fingers pointed at him. And they say, you, you are not the one, and you are guilty. Jesus is arrested, and as he's getting ready to take part in what ultimately would be an unjust trial, we see in the story that Peter is lurking around. Peter, his, his, his member of the inner circle, his friend who had said, I will never, ever turn my back on you. You know this story. Peter said, I will never, ever deny you. And then Peter ultimately was like, I, I know I said you're my ride or die, but I'm totally going to deny you. <laughs> And this is what happens in Mark chapter 14. This is the last half of, of Peter's denial of Jesus. 
It says Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear as he's being confronted about his connection to this so-called savior king. He says, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Uh Uh-oh. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter broke down and wept. You'd expect a king to have confidants and close friends. You'd expect a king to have an inner circle that he can count on, except for this king. This king is not only a king accused, but he is now, he is a king betrayed. And betrayal, as well, is a horrible feeling. And perhaps you've felt that one, too. Betrayal is the spouse who made vows to you who starts an emotional affair with someone they work with. Betrayal is the best friend who, for whatever reason, it's a mystery to you, they just, they fall off the face of the earth and they won't return your calls. Uh, from, from a pastor's perspective, I'll tell you what betrayal is, and this is me just being honest with you. Betrayal is like when there's a parishioner that, that comes to your church and you really are excited about them and you kind, of, you kind of spend some time and you get to know them and then all of a sudden they just like stop showing up, like no explanation. It's the, uh, it's the coworker who you joke around with, you have a bunch of fun with and you really relate to and then they turn cold to you so that they can advance past you. That's Betrayal. And, and I know that some of you have felt that, and, and it hurts. And yet, and yet, what do we see? we see? We see Jesus here at the hands of Peter. He knows betrayal. He's a king accused. He's a king betrayed. After the betrayal of Peter, Jesus is, is taken over to Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is, as we heard last week, he's, he's the Roman authority who has, who has the power to actually punish Jesus, uh, to put him to death if necessary. The Jewish people, though Jerusalem was a Jewish town, it was the, the capital of the Jewish faith, it was, it, was being, it was being run by Roman occupiers. And so in order for anything to really get done, they had to get the sign off from the Roman authorities. And Pontius Pilate was the Roman authority who had to sign off on any official punishment that would happen to Jesus. And so Jesus is brought to Pontius Pilate, and he really doesn't want to put this Jewish rabbi to death. It's not a good look for him or for Rome. He really doesn't want that on his hands. And as we heard last week, he, he gives his accusers an option. He says, look, I, I, I usually set one person free a year, and I'm going to give you the option to set Jesus free. Do you really, really want to put him to death? Uh, because if you don't, you can set him free, or you could set this truly horrible person named Barabbas free. And Pilate, I'm assuming, fully thinking that they're going to set Jesus free, that these very devout Jewish people are going to set the Jewish rabbi free. He puts this option in front of them, and to his surprise, the Jewish people look at the Jewish rabbi and they say, crucify him. Free Barabbas, kill him. He's one of us, but we want him dead. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him, his own people. I think it can be hard for us to grasp the the depth of pain that Jesus must have felt at this particular moment. Demographers have been telling us for some time that that Houston is now the most diverse city in the United States. You know that. 
It's one of only a handful of majority minority cities in the U.S., and it's, it's a beautiful thing. So, for example, if you go to, like, Hong Kong City Market downtown, or if you go to, um, if you go to like, eat at a Pakistani restaurant in the Mahatma Gandhi district, um, did you know we have a Mahatma Gandhi district in Houston? We do. Look it up. It's a thing. If you were to go there and sit at, like, a Pakistani restaurant, what you would find is you would find these, these, these tight-knit communities bound together by, by blood and tradition and family trees and unique culture, and they're bound together deeply and richly. Jesus was bound together into that kind of a community. And yet, and yet that community rejected him. That community said, we, we don't want any part of him. In order to be a king, bloodline is everything. The family tree is everything. The shared history, the common story is everything. It's what makes you king. And yet Jesus, the so-called savior king, has his bloodline, his family tree, his history, reject him and yell, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. He is no longer one of us. He's dead to us. Kill him. He's not the king we wanted. He's disowned. I, can't, I, I struggle to imagine the depth of hurt that that must have caused Jesus, but maybe some of you know it. The pain of feeling like your, your, own, your own blood and your own family tree somehow failed you or didn't want you. So some of you have felt that from a very young age when, when your dad left and, and you grew up thinking that that was because of you. Or, or some of you feel that because you have a, you have a son or a daughter who, um, for whatever reason, they just, they don't reach out, they don't try, they don't call. And you've tried to apologize for everything under the sun, and you, you kind of you have your phone in your pocket all the time, hoping that when it vibrates, it's them. It's a text from them saying, I'm coming home. It's a call from them saying, I'm sorry, but the call never is from them. And you, you know what it's like to feel like your blood and your history has betrayed you. And, and what we know about Jesus is that he knows that pain, too. So, so here, here's the kind of king Jesus is. He's not the king that, that, that the Jewish people wanted him to be. He is a king accused of crimes. He is a king, he's a king betrayed by his friends. He's a king disowned by his own blood. And only now is it Friday morning. It's Friday morning and Jesus is, is stripped naked and he's, he's scourged, which means there's a whip with, um, with some rocks and uh, other sharp elements at the end of it. And he's beaten uh, quite literally within an inch of his life. His flesh is torn open. At that point, he's, he's given a cross which is slung over his shoulder and he's, he's told to drag it outside of the city gates. He, he faints and nearly dies on the way, so they pick him up and they give the, the cross to a man named Simon who is just passing by. They drag Jesus the rest of the way out of the city and they, they nail him to a cross and they lift him up and it's only now that Jesus has his throne. And in this horrible twist of irony, Jesus is, is nailed to a cross he doesn't deserve with a title above his head that he does. The King of the Jews. And anyone who would pass by in that moment, seeing Jesus in between two other criminals, crucified and dying, they would understandably assume that Jesus had done something horrible. 
Because only truly guilty, the worst of the worst and the guiltiest of the guilty, were ever crucified. The Romans developed crucifixion purposely to be the cruelest, most painful, most shameful form of corporal punishment. Not only was it excruciatingly painful, it was prolonged. It took a long time to die. Ultimately, people who were crucified died of asphyxiation. Because as they were nailed to a cross, in order to breathe, you had to push up with your legs, lift up in order to open up your lungs and to get a breath. And as the blood is draining from your body slowly, as the life is draining from your body slowly, your ability to lift yourself up and get a breath goes away. So ultimately, you asphyxiate. Slowly. And it was public. They did it out in the open so that people would walk by and they would both see that this man was guilty, but they would also be a little afraid. May that kind of guilt never come down on me. Jesus was on the cross for six hours. Nailed to the cross at nine. Finally dies at 3 p.m. He's on the cross for the equivalent of a flight from New York to Los Angeles. Uh, the equivalent of a drive from, from Houston to New Orleans. Jesus is on the cross, slowly dying. And anyone who would look at him would see that this man is guilty because clearly he is condemned. Jesus is not only a king accused, a king betrayed, a king disowned, but he is a king condemned to death. He's a king condemned to die. And the question for you and I is this. What do we do with our guilt? You and I both know that we're guilty of real things. Jesus was guilty of nothing. And one of the worst things about feeling guilty is, is knowing that we deserve some condemnation. That's why we so often run from our guilt and hide from our guilt, because we know that, that, that in, a, in a world where justice needs to reign, in, in, a world where, in a world where there's a good God and a just God, that, that if we're guilty of anything, that we need to be punished of something. And the reason we, we are so afraid of our own guilt is because we know that it deserves punishment. And we know that we're guilty in two ways. We're guilty of things that, that we, we shouldn't have done, but we did do. And then we're also guilty of things that we, we should have done, but we failed to do. Uh, this is a quote from Voltaire that kind of haunts me. It says that every man is guilty of all the good he did not do. How much good have you failed to do? You and I, we want to run from our guilt because we want to run from punishment. But yet, yet look at the cross and look at what we see Jesus doing. Jesus embraces guilt that is not his own, and he embraces a punishment and condemnation that is not his own. And he takes his throne as a cross. He takes the cross as a throne. So now we have a Jesus, a king, who is accused who is betrayed, who is disowned, and who is condemned. And the question is why? Why would he do this? There's much that could be said in answer to this question, but I think 
for today, the answer is this. Jesus becomes this kind of king so that he can prove that he is your king and that he is a loving king. You know what it's like to be accused. You know what it's like to be betrayed. You know what it's like to have family and history fail you. You know that you are guilty. And yet Jesus knows that you cannot stand underneath the weight of all those things. And so he decides to make his kingship, his lordship, his reign about facing all of those things for you. So that he might save you from the ill effects of all those things and more. That he might drain them of their power by having the full force of them put on him. And then he, having died at the weight of, under the weight of those things, might rise from them and show his power over them. So that any accusation, any betrayal, any disavowment, any guilt will not have an ultimate or last say over you because Jesus soaked all of its power and energy and he defeated it in his resurrection from the dead. And he promises that defeat to you. So he makes his entire life and his kingship about being accused and betrayed and disowned and guilty and condemned for you to save you from those things. When Jesus entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, people were waving palm branches shouting, Hosanna, which means, Lord, save us. They knew they needed to be saved from something. They just didn't quite know what it was. They thought they needed to be saved by being part of a kingdom that had power and beauty again. They thought they needed to be part of a kingdom that had a renewed military, that had a, a really handsome, musically talented leader like David again. That's what they wanted. But Jesus knew they needed to be saved in a different way from something else. And very often in your life, you have cried out to God saying, Lord, save me. You have waved your own palm branches in the air and you've said, Lord, save me from whatever is in front of me. And salvation has taken on a particular form for you. You've wanted him to get you that job that was going to lead you to the next level. You've wanted him to heal that particular ailment. You've wanted him to, to move your boyfriend in such a way that he would actually get down on a knee and propose to you after all this time. You want him to heal you from that chronic pain. We, we envision all types of salvation that we want Jesus to enact for us. And all those things are good things. They're fine things. They're, they're wonderful things, but they're not the main thing that you need to be saved from. Jesus knows how you need to be saved. He knows the kind of king that you need. He knows that there are bigger things that he must face and conquer for you. And so he is accused for you so that the next time anybody waves their finger at you, you can say, God does not wave his finger at me. And so he is betrayed for you so that anytime somebody turns their back on you who should have your back, you can say, God will never turn his back on me. Anytime anyone who should be good to you and love you fails you, you can look at your father and know I'm part of his family and his blood will never fail me. And anytime that anyone wags a finger at you, rightly or wrongly, and says there is guilt in you, you can say my father finds no fault in me because Jesus was accused, betrayed, disowned, condemned for me. That's the salvation you need. And that's what Jesus has earned for you. And you never have to doubt whether or not he loves you. You will for certain have questions as to why he works the way he works and does the things he does, but you never have to doubt his love. Because look at what he's done for you. Look at the lengths to which he's gone for you. How can he do anything but love you?
I want to close where I began. Uh, that painting, the, the raising of the cross. That's, it's by Rembrandt, and you may, you may know this about Rembrandt, but Rembrandt was famous for painting himself into his works. He did this about 90 different times. If you look at the center of the painting, at the center of the painting is Rembrandt. That, that's his own face. He did a self-portrait in the middle of this painting, and he's right there in the middle of it with both arms wrapped around the cross, lifting it into place. Now, he did this not because he's an egomaniac. He, he did this because this is, in many ways, an act of confession for him. This is the center piece of the painting. It's got the brightest light. It's right in the middle of the painting. Rembrandt wants all the focus on his face and his work in lifting up the cross. This is a confession. This is Rembrandt saying, it's my sin that put him there. It's also him saying, I, I need him on this cross. This is the kind of king that I need. I need him to be the kind of king who's accused, rejected, condemned for me. I need him there because this is the salvation that my soul needs. But Rembrandt is in another place in the painting, too. He is also the person on the horse with his sword, his little dagger pointed at you. He's the only figure in the painting who's looking directly at us. And he's pointing his dagger out like this, as if to point a finger at us. And what he's doing is inviting the person who's looking at the painting to see the same thing that Rembrandt does. Do you see yourself? lifting Jesus into place? Do you realize that it is your sins that put him there? And are you willing to confess that you, like me, you need him here in this moment, raised up, lifted high, facing the things that would take you down and conquering them with his death and his blood and the loss of his own life? That's the question I want to leave you with this morning. If you're here this morning as a skeptic and you, you don't know how you feel about all of this stuff, my, my encouragement for you is to ask this question. Is, is Jesus, the, the accused, betrayed, disowned, and condemned Jesus, is he your king? Yes or no? And over the next two weeks as we head towards Easter, wrestle with that question. Is he your king? And I pray the answer would be yes. And if you're here as a follower of Jesus, my, my encouragement for you is to give thanks. Even in the face of accusation, in the face of betrayal, in the face of someone who should love you, failing you, in the face of your own guilt and shame, give thanks that you have Jesus who has faced these things for you, drained them of their power, conquered them completely, and promised nothing but mercy and grace to you as a result. Give thanks. Let's pray.